I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Mr. College Football, now that's a title. It belongs to only one person, and that's Tony Barnhart. He's a legend, especially down south, and he's one of the kindest, most respected scribes in the business. We'll ask Tony about how he became known as Mr. College Football and ask him for some of his favorite memories of covering that sport for more than four decades. Hey, we'll talk a little ACC hoops history, too. But most of this episode is deep-fried football, as you'd expect when a Hall of Fame writer named for a sport joins you. Herschel, Bo, Tebow, the old ball coach, we got you covered. On to Hut Hut. Tony, it's great to talk with you again. Welcome to Press Box Access. Well, thanks, Todd. It's it's uh, I always love talking about the business and how the business has changed, and so I'm looking forward to this. Good, good. I'm glad you could join us. Now, I know we could talk for days, but I'll try not to keep you too long because I know the SEC bat phone could ring <laughs> at any moment, especially if Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher put on the gloves again. Uh, my Lord, have you ever seen anything like that? Uh, that's easy. The answer is no. Uh, I got. I can't tell you how many times I was asked in the post-fight, uh, you know, Tony, have you ever seen anything like it? And I've, I've been doing this a long time. And no, I've never seen anything like it. I've seen coaches, you know, do press conference and sort of elude to something that's going on to infer that something's going on, to maybe wink, even wink. <laughs> maybe suggest that something was going on. But I've never seen a coach uh, to to carry on the WWE analogy come off the top rope the way that <laughs> the way that Jimbo Fisher did and uh, I, it's funny I said man he was he was running hot and somebody said oh you should have seen him the night before if you thought he was running hot then you should have heard it so no never seen anything never seen anything quite like it well, Nick and Jimbo, I mean, I think those two boys have more than a failure to communicate. And, uh, well, you've been communicating to college football fans for nearly half a century. That's why you're known far and wide as Mr. College Football. I love that. I love that title. By the way, have you ever signed your name like that? I will. Sometimes when I'm signing autographs or doing books and stuff like that, I'll, I'll sign Mr. CFB because that's my Twitter. That's my right. Twitter handle. But uh, Is it on your mortgage? Wait a minute. Is it on your mortgage? Is it on like personal no, checks? <laughs> they wouldn't give me a mortgage on that name. So, no, it, it, it's an interesting story. I can't take any credit for that whatsoever. Uh, when the AJC, I was with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution for 25 years. And towards the end of my time there, they began really ramping up their online presence. And the guy running the online, op- the sports part of the online operation came to me and says, Hey, Tony we want you to do a blog. And I said, great, what's a blog? And they explained (laughs) it to me. I said, oh, you want me to write something to get people online arguing amongst themselves? He said, that's exactly what it's going to be. I said, okay. All right. That'll be fine. He said, said, oh, by the way. Back to pro wrestling. Yeah. yeah, I said, oh, by the way, and we're going to give it a title. We're going to call it Mr. College Football. And I said, his name was Scott. I said, Scott, that that sounds kind of cheesy to me. And he said, yeah, it is, but cheesy works on the internet. You'll find out. And so first time I wrote the blog, they put Mr. College Football, and 
been that way ever since. Well, it's certainly appropriate title for you. I, by the way, I've never been called Mister except for the authorities, you know, <laughs> Mister Jones. Uh, but uh, you certainly are an authority on college football. This twenty twenty two season is your forty seventh. Is that right? Covering uh, college football. Uh, 40, I believe it's 46, yeah. Mm -hmm. 46, all right. Covering the, covering the game for newspapers, TV, internet, and radio. You've been with the SEC Network since uh, it launched in 2014 as a writer and in-studio. You're Prior to that, you're at CBS, ESPN, and like you mentioned, 25 years at the Atlanta Constitution Journal. Um, what, what have you loved about covering college football all of these years? The, the great thing about that, I went to my first game when I was like, I don't know, 12 years old, something like that. And it, it, it was just the, how the place felt when you, and obviously I, I grew up 30 minutes from the University of Georgia in Athens and uh, went with a group and just, just the sights and the sounds and the colors and the pretty girls and the bands and the teams and the pretty girl. Did I mention the pretty girls? Yeah, pretty no, girls. No, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it was just special. And it's been that way ever since. I never thought I'd be able to make my living uh, in the sport, but fortunately, I've managed to to squeak out a a, a living uh, doing it. And uh, it's just it's just fun. It's special. It's it's you know I've I've covered pro football and all the pro sports, and they're great. Some of the greatest athletes in the world. But you don't get the feel. You don't feel the way you feel. Uh, particularly in, in, when football season starts. I mean, in my part of the world, Todd, you spend enough time down here. As soon as Memorial Day is over, and basically as soon as July 4th is over, people are stopping me in the grocery store said, man, when is it going to get here? I mean, they, <laughs> they people build their lives around college football, and I don't think you can say that about the, about the other sports. They're all great, but there's just something special about college football. Do you have a favorite memory, something, a special feel moment as a journalist during all those years? Uh, one comes quickly to mind. It was the last uh, BCS National Championship game at the Rose Bowl. And we looked around, and I think uh, Malcolm Moran, our good friend Malcolm Moran, figured this out, that there were only seven people who had uh, covered every one of the B BCS championship games going back to 1998. So what's that, 14 or whatever it was, 12, mm -hmm. 14. Uh, and Malcolm figured out there were seven of us who'd covered all 12 of those games or 14 of those games. And so before, you know, probably about an hour before the Rose Bowl or before the championship game, they got it. And it, it, obviously it was the usual suspects. It was... You know, Dennis Dodd and me and Blair Kirkhoff and Hoops and Ivan Mazel and all those guys. And we have a picture of all of us on the on the Rose Bowl field together. And that was uh, that was really neat. Uh, the other memory that I will throw in that's near and dear to my heart. And this and this one's number one. I, I've got a group of my three of my fraternity brothers and we go every year. We go to the Georgia, Florida game in Jacksonville together. Right. And play golf and tell lies about our misspent youth and and have a, just to have a grand time. Uh, I'll tailgate with them, then I go to the press box and do what I have to do. Uh, we've done that for well over 30 years, and it's a special time. This year, with Georgia playing well and in position to 
win a national championship. I told him, I said, now, boys, if Georgia gets to the national championship game in Indianapolis, I said, we're going, and I'm going to sit in the stands with you rather than go up mm. to the press box. And so I did. And it was absolutely, we've got a photo, and I wrote a column about it later on, what that was like. But that's, uh, that's memory number one, not only for the, for the atmosphere, but for I could spend it with my boys. And that was, uh, that was special. I think that shows how personal the game is to people in the South. And, and you grew up in Georgia. Didn't your hometown have like 1,500 people, Union Point? Yep, 1,500 people. And if you go back today, it's still 1,500 people. It was a, uh, like a lot of small towns in Georgia, the economy was based on the textile mill. And then those jobs got shipped to other places in the world. And Union, right. Point, Union Point was no different. Uh, but it was a, it was a fun place to grow up, and again, it's literally thirty minute drive to Athens uh, to go to go see games, and uh, and uh, yeah, I've been I've been a very lucky guy to to start from Union Point, Georgia, uh, a long long time ago, and and uh, been able to make a living doing doing what I'm doing. Well, making a living doing what you're doing, but you really wanted to be a high school football coach, right? Tell us about that. Well, I was, uh, I was, I played football. I was small. But no, wait a minute, wait a minute. What kind of player were you? Well, I was going to say, I was, uh, <laughs> I was small, but I, but I compensated by being exceedingly slow. And, <laughs> no, I was a very, very, very average football player, but I enjoyed the game and I enjoyed watching coaches as they prepared for the game. And I learned a lot about that. And so I started at Georgia Southern and I was going to major in physical education and be a coach. Well, uh, one day I noticed on the bulletin board uh, at the dining hall that the, the student newspaper was looking for some help, specifically in sports. And so they, they sent me, the student newspaper sent me to a basketball game. Uh, Georgia Southern did not have football at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went into the arena and sat down. I looked at, at, mid, at midcourt. There was, a, there was a seat there that had my name on it. Tony Barnhart of the George Ann, the George Ann, which was the student newspaper. So I sat down and I sat there for a while. And then a pretty girl came by and gave me a game program. And I sat there a while longer and a pretty girl came by and gave me a Coca-Cola. And I said, you know what? I might like this sports writing thing. This is not a shit. And the seat's not bad either, right? Front yeah, row. That's right. That's right. <laughs> right on the front row. And um, But I, I went through that year and, and saw my name. When I saw my first byline, I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And so I gave it some thought and decided to transfer to the University of Georgia, which has an outstanding journalism school. And enroll in journalism school, and that's that's uh, that's how it got started. And, so you graduate yeah. in 1976. The day after you graduate, you start at the Union Daily Times in South Carolina, making 135 a week, typing on a portable J.C. Penny typewriter. I should note, right. And a few months later, you end up in Greensboro, North Carolina, in the heart of ACC basketball country. Now we're going to talk a lot of college football here. But you've also covered a lot of college basketball. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit about what it was like to be around ACC basketball in the late 70s and early 80s. It was an incredible time to follow the ACC because you're talking, you're talking James Worthy, Michael Jordan, Ralph Sampson, Sam Perkins, on and on and on. Great players. I, I will never forget, I use this as an example, a 1982 game 
between North Carolina and Virginia in Chapel Hill at the old Carmichael Auditorium. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking on that floor, and, and North Carolina's got James Worthy, Sam Perkins, and Michael Jordan on one team. And Virginia's got Raph Sampson and a bunch of other really good players. And you would never see that today. I mean, Ralph Sampson was a, uh, was a junior and came back for his senior year in 83. Those guys would never would have hung around. Greensboro, North Carolina, is centrally located in the state. So it was a 35-minute drive to Wake Forest, a 45-minute drive to Chapel Hill, about an hour to Duke, about an hour to North Carolina State in Raleigh. And so I could hit all four of those schools within about an hour's drive. And it was really, really, really neat time. And a lot of great basketball. North Carolina obviously won the national championship in 1982. Dean Smith's first of two. Mm-hmm. The following year was Jim Valvano at NC State. Right. Uh, and that uh, Cinderella story, I was, at, I was at both of those final fours. All right, well, tell us, tell us, tell us about, I I really want to know about that 83 title game when uh, NC State upset Houston out there in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I mean, that's one of the iconic moments in college sports history. What was it like as a writer at that event? Uh, It was incredible. My first memory about it goes back to the day before. There was a writer uh, for the now deceased for the old Raleigh News and Observer, Carlton Tudor. Mm Mm-hmm who was uh, just a wonderful character, a wonderful writer. And we were all staying at all the media. We were all staying at the uh, uh, the Marriott in Albuquerque. Imagine, and, wait a minute, hold on. Imagine that. Sports writers were staying at a Marriott. Shock, shock. <laughs> even, even then, well, it's all about, Todd, you know this, it's all about getting the points. Everybody you got to get those that. points. You got to get the points. And so Carlton was going around the lobby with all these writers, and he's trying to get somebody, anybody, to pick NC State, and nobody will do it. Because you're talking about North Carolina State playing five slamma jamma, one of the greatest collections of basketball talent that has ever existed. And there's no way that North Carolina State can win this game. And so he, he, he called to never, he never found anybody to pick NC State, but I always remember that. And then when the game started, uh, there was this incredible tension in the air, and it was, uh, it, it was it was an amazing thing to be a part of. Yeah, tell us about being inside the arena. It was a, when you think about the Final Four now. It's in these giant football stadiums, but this was a basketball arena, and you know, made for college basketball, really. And so the atmosphere fit the sport, if not what the event became. So what was it like inside there that night? Well, it, it, the arena was so small they couldn't get all the media in there. The media workroom was literally outside of the building. They had they had to put it together over there. But the tension the tension was great. Uh, you know, Houston jumps out to an early lead, but uh, you know, they uh, what happened was that North Carolina State warmed down and Guy Lewis as somebody famously said, Guy Lewis fell asleep and woke up and thought he was Dean Smith running <laughs> the four, running the four corners. What he had, what he had to do is he had to slow it down. Because NC State didn't slow it down. NC State ran the ball, and they and and Houston looks up, and there's 10 minutes to go in the game. They've got a little lead, but they're exhausted. Mm. So Guy Lewis slowed the game down to get his guys catch a break, and that enabled NC State to sort of hang around and hang around and hang around. And um, and the finish uh, was just 
incredible. Did you think Wittenberg's shot had a chance to go in? No, no. We, I, was, I was sitting there in midcourt up a few rows, and you could tell when it, when it, it left his hand that it wasn't going to get there. And, but you're sitting there watching and watching, and you see Lorenzo Charles just suddenly come out of nowhere and grab it and put it back. And, you know, Todd, me being the calm, objective journalist that I am, I jumped up, and sh- when, when, when the ball went through and it was obvious what had happened, I said, son of a gun, although I didn't say son of a gun, I said something else. They did it. I looked at my watch. I had exactly 25 minutes to make the first deadline. <laughs> and away, and away we went. Exactly. Did you see Valvano running around the court? I did. I did. He was watching that whole thing. He's running for, as he says, he's running for somebody, find somebody to hug. Yeah, uh, and it was no, and, and the energy was just unbelievable. It, it was just the contrast. It was incredible noise down on NC State's end, and and the Houston guys were just literally in shock. Uh, you can still see the images of guys beating on the floor. I mean, it was. I mean, you're talking about <laughs> Akeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler and. You know, Larry Michaud and all these guys. It was just an incredible basketball team. But NC State, to Valvano's credit, he he had a veteran team with with Wittenberg and Lowe and Thurl Bailey, and they uh, they hung they hung in there and found ways to win. That that was an incredible team to cover. Period. A lot of people don't remember this. Derek Wittenberg broke his foot in December mm-hmm. and was right. out for a long, long time, and the team just went down Wittenberg comes back and they still aren't haven't adjusted but they finally figured it out and of course the national championship game was the big one but the one when they beat they had to win the ACC tournament just to get to the NCAA basketball tournament right and they did and they beat Ralph Sampson in the finals of the tournament and then beat them again in the regional finals, it was. It, you talk about a team that was meant to win the national championship. That was NC State in '83. Well, that was one of those legendary moments that propelled the sport of college basketball. And you're sitting front row when it happened, mid court. But uh, okay, let's you know, let's talk about a ball that you can't dribble because you know you're Mr. College Football now, inducted into the Football Writers Association of America's Hall of Fame in 2009. Covered more than. 30 national championship games for football. You moved to the Atlanta Constitution Journal in 1984 as a beat reporter covering Georgia. And you've written several books about Georgia football, including one about Vince Dooley. And I think Vince um, is a name outside of the South that, you know, maybe a lot of folks don't recall, but he was a legendary coach from 1964 to 88, won a national title in 1980. Can you tell us a little bit about Vince Dooley as a coach and as a person? Well, my relationship with Vince Dooley goes all the way back to 1964 when he took the job at Georgia. He was 31 years old. He was the freshman coach at Auburn, which is where he went to school and played quarterback at Auburn. He played played both football and basketball at Auburn. Uh, Spent some time uh, in the Marines, came back, was the freshman coach, and got hired uh, at the age of 31 uh, by uh, 1964, 65, 66, he won his first of six SEC championships, uh, won 25 years, 201 wins, 
six SEC championships and a national championship with some dude named Herschel Walker uh, at uh, running back. And then when he was done coaching, he became the athletic director and he's won just about every award that is possible in the field of intercollegiate athletics. What made Dooley a special coach for that era? Incredibly disciplined, incredibly organized. I remember uh, the second year Georgia upset Alabama. Alabama was the defending national champions. They upset uh, Alabama in Athens by running what they called a flea flicker play. They were down 17 to 10. They called it a flea flicker. What it really was was the old hook and lateral where a guy runs down the field, does a hook, catches the ball, and then laterals to a trailing back from behind. Mm-hmm. They they had they had practiced that play. A cup, you know, first of all, Vince Dooley had some gadget plays, which is something you never heard of back then. And they called it the flea flicker. And I talked to him and I talked to the guys that ran the play, the, to the quarterback who ran the play. He said, we practiced that sucker at least three or four times a week and in practice it never worked (laughs) right it it never worked everybody would drop the ball and and so it had never worked in practice when they're down 17 to 10 and vince dooley calls the flea flicker and the quarterback told the guy who brought the play in and said this is no time to be kidding around dude what is the play he said Mm -hmm. no coach said run the flea flicker so it (laughs) uh from kirby moore to pat hodson who was the uh uh, the tight end, and he caught the ball and lateraled it back to Bob Taylor, who ran it for a touchdown. Now, now it's 17 to 16, and Vince Dooley decides he's going to go for two. As a matter of fact, Bud Wilkinson was working for NBC. He says, you got to go for two. <laughs> I said, okay. So they went for two, and here's the thing. Georgia had a specific two-point play to run in that situation, and Nobody did that back then. You just ran a play that you thought would work. Right. So they, they ran a two-point conversion play. It worked. And Vince Dooley had his first big upset, beating Alabama and Bear Bryant 18 to 17. Right. Well, he was, you know, he's running gadget plays, and, you know, he's, he's right there at the cutting edge of strategy. He's also a guy that I think about, you know, he was a legend, but he, kind of a legend on a human scale. You know, I mean, he seemed like the type of guy that you could get to know as a person, especially in those days. What kind of person was he to deal with as a writer? Yeah, great, because Vince Dooley is the original Renaissance man. He is a student of history, has visited every, uh, all the major battles in the, from the Civil War, has written several books about that. He is a master gardener as a horticulturist. Uh, he he has an incredible flower garden behind his house, and people will stop and ask to look at his gardens. Uh, so he, he, is in, he is interested in everything. And so he is, he is strictly not, and he ran, he, he was gonna run, he almost ran for governor and decided uh, not to do it. But he is, uh, he is much more than a football coach. And, and what's been neat for me is, you know, I, I started following Georgia with that 65 game that I just told you about against Alabama and was Vince Dooley was a hero and then he later became a friend and now we're very good friends. That's great. You mentioned uh, Herschel Walker, you know, on that great 1980 national championship team that the Bulldogs had. He was a freshman that year. I think he averaged like 5.9 yards a carry, which is insane when you think about it. Now, that was a couple years before you got down, got to Atlanta to cover Georgia. 
But do you remember Walker as a college football player? Oh, oh, sure, sure. I mean, I, I got back for some games during that national championship year. Um, he was just an amazing thing about Herschel Walker is when he comes in as a freshman, he had played at the lowest classification uh, level in the state down in Wrightsville, Georgia, and he was he was so big and strong he would just run over people, but nobody knew how his skills were going to translate at the college level. Now, everybody right. thought he was going to be really good, but the fact of the matter is he did not start his first college game. They were not particularly impressed with what he had done in practice. And so he had not, he had not played. All of a sudden, Georgia found themselves down 15-2, uh, to two, and they put Herschel Walker in the game. And then that's when that famous scene of him running over Bill Bates Mm-hmm. Uh, the former Dallas Cowboy, uh, he runs up and scores a touchdown, and he scores another touchdown. Georgia wins the game, sixteen to fifteen, and away they go. Uh, but what happened the following week? They played Texas A and M, and on a just a basic toss sweep, he outruns everybody at Texas A and M for a seventy-five yard touchdown. And Bo Buck Blue, who was a quarterback, told me he said, "When we saw that, we said, my goodness." Mm-hmm. What have we got here? Right. And, and from then, from then on, from the Texas A&M game on, he was uh, a superstar. And he was he was he didn't he didn't win the Heisman tro- Trophy. Marcus Allen won the Heisman Trophy because he had two thousand yards. Mm-hmm. But Herschel Walker was the best football player in the country that year. Well, Herschel skipped his senior year, went to the USFL. You know, and he later was with obviously the Dallas Cowboys, and then the big trade to the Vikings, and after. The NFL. He was in Bob, he was in bobsledding. Now he's running for Senate. Yeah. So when you say Herschel Walker, he means a lot of things to a lot of people. But I always think about like what made him so special as a college football player. When you think about that question, what comes to mind? Nobody had ever seen that combination of speed and power. You've seen a lot of great power. Herschel was 235, 240. We had never seen uh Anybody run that fast, carrying that much weight. And it was incredible. And I will never forget uh, 1980. Actually, I think I said Marcus Allen won the Heisman Trophy. Uh, George Rogers won the Heisman Trophy in 1980. And Georgia and South Carolina played in Athens. Mm-hmm. And if you ever go back and, and do a Google search on it, Todd, George Herschel Walker had like a 70-yard run where he just took the ball and started running down the sidelines. And the South Carolina players would have the angle on him to, to close the gap and tackle him. But by the time that the South Carolina tackler got there, Herschel was gone. He literally outran the entire defense. It was one of the greatest runs I've ever seen. Uh, and and uh, it, was just, uh, it was just remarkable. Okay, you've seen everybody, especially in the South, in the last 50 years in college football. Where does Herschel rank? Oh, I think I think number one. When people ask me about, particularly about running backs, uh, I think it's I says it's Herschel and Bo, and then there's everybody else. Uh, a lot of great, great backs, and a lot of great, great players. But this guy, he tra- well, put it this way: Georgia struggled the year before in 1979, right? And uh, but they knew they had a senior team coming back, and if they could just find a running back. Uh, they would be in pretty good shape, Vince Dooley said. Well, they did find a running back. And he, now Herschel, Herschel is the best football player I've ever seen, but I'll say this Bo Jackson's 
a doggone close second. Well, it's, you got to be pretty good if Bo Jackson's number two. <laughs> and I'm not questioning your authority on that, but I'm just saying that's that says a lot right there about Herschel if he's ahead of Bo Jackson. No, no <laughs> doubt. Well, Bo and Herschel and those type of players really epitomize you know, the type of talent that's down in the South and just, you know, just make people mad about the sport. But they've been they've been passionate about college football forever down there. I mean, you were the national sports editor, college sports editor for the Atlanta Constitution Journal beginning in eighty seven. So, you know, you you know, you you started branching out and putting into context this Southern fever. I know I was a senior in college at Kentucky in nineteen eighty seven and I bring that up because that's when I first really traveled through the South for college football, and it was just eye-opening. I mean, I I remember being outside the stadium at LSU, and there's a damn tiger, a live tiger in a cage. (laughs) And I'm like, these people are nuts. (laughs) Uh, Why do you think so many people are crazy about college football in the South? Well, if you want to get get historical about it, uh, I've had people tell me that it goes all the way back uh, to the post-Civil War era when... You know, the, the South was still struggling economically uh, against the industrial, as they say, against the industrialized North, as they said. <laughs> uh, and so, but what they did, while they couldn't compete with their, their Northern brothers from an economic standpoint, what they could do is they, they could play pretty doggone good football. So there was mm-hmm. a certain, certain Southern pride in the, the ability. Well, I'll give you an example. When Georgia won its national championship in 1980 under Vince Dooley with Herschel Walker, that was a big deal. But what was a bigger deal was that Georgia beat Notre Dame to win that national championship. That was a really big deal. Mm. And so I think that has a lot to do with it. And again, there were no there were no pro sports in the South until, you know, until we got to the 60s. So college college football was basically all they College football and Kentucky basketball was basically all they had. Mm-hmm. And so that was uh, that was important. But, yeah, I think it just goes back to a regional pride. Uh, people like the fact that, the you know, you, you go to a play. Well, at Georgia plays Notre Dame again, 2017, in South Bend. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm talking to our good friend John Heisler, who was at Notre Dame at the time. Uh, John is the, the longtime sports information director and all that. And, and – and and I told John, he and I were at a meeting together. I said, now, John, uh, understand uh, that the Georgia people are, are coming to see you. He, he said, well, you know, we've had, you know, we've had Nebraska. We've had USC. We can have, I said, no, 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 John, you don't understand. Right. You're, you're not going to get just a lot of fans. You're going to get invaded. And that's exactly what happened. Over 40,000 Georgia fans showed up for the 2017 game at wow. Notre Dame. Wow. And it, it was just uh, an incredible thing. And towards the end of the game, when it was clear that Georgia was going to win, what did the Georgia fans do? SEC, SEC, SEC. That's, that's what Southern football is all about. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month 
to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Well, you know, I mean, the Union sent General Sherman down south, and he won the SEC in 1864 and 65 with the wide tackle six defense and uh, That's right. wing T offense. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I can see where there were some upset folks down there. Um, the passion, you know, it is legendary, and if you almost have to see it in person to believe it. So with that said, give me your, give me some, give us some crazy moments, some anecdotes that that you have witnessed covering college football in the South. Well, uh, uh, there have been there have been a lot of great ones. It's it's it's, it's the it's the plays that you don't uh, accept. Now I wasn't I wasn't there. Uh, this is this is part of one of my favorite stories. Georgia played Florida in Jacksonville. Georgia is ranked number two in the country mm-hmm. with Herschel Walker and uh, and Notre Dame, who's number one, is playing Georgia Tech in Atlanta. Uh, I was still working for the Greensboro, North Carolina newspaper, so I had to be in Tallahassee. I couldn't go to Jacksonville, so I sat in my hotel room and watched it. And uh, and so I could I could put on since I wasn't covering the team, I could put on my fan hat and pull for Georgia and all that kind of stuff. Right. Stayed at the at the Econo Lodge in lovely Tallahassee, Florida. Hey, you got to get those uh, Econo Lodge points too. I that, mean, come absolutely, on. absolutely. I mean, yeah, that, that that might get you free hot water at some stage if you get enough points. <laughs> Well, and what was interesting, I was covering uh, working in I was covering North Carolina A and T uh, for my newspaper, the Greensboro Daily News, and they were playing Florida A and M, and so I, I couldn't get over to Jacksonville, so I watched it on, and so everybody now knows if you follow Georgia football at all, the incredible Buck Ballou to Lindsey Scott touchdown pass, Georgia's down by one, twenty-one to twenty, with a minute left, third and seven. Uh, and they've got the ball at their own seven-yard line. It looks, the great call, run, Lindsey, run. Run, Lindsey, from from Larry Munson. And so the plays run. Lindsey Scott scores a touchdown. I jump up out of my chair in the room and put my fist through a hanging lap and just absolutely destroyed it. <laughs> and, and so, okay, this this is great. So. I'm checking out. I, I go cover my game. I'm checking out the next day, and I said, "Hey, could I speak to the manager?" So, well, I'm the manager on call. I said, "Well, in room whatever it was, I, I'm afraid I got a little excited uh, watching Georgia beat Florida, and I, I really destroyed a lamp. I'll be happy to pay whatever it costs." And the guy <laughs> said, "He goes, well, wait a minute. Let me get this straight." I said, "You were pulling." Again, you were you were pulling against Florida when you broke the lamp. I said, "Well, yeah, I, mean, I was pulling for Georgia and yeah against Florida." I said, "Hey, I'm a Florida State fan. You don't owe me anything." So, <laughs> so that is one of one of my favorite stories. Uh, uh, it's it, it's uh, just an incredible time, and and those are the kind of memories that kind of stick with you uh, on a, you know. Uh, you know, the, this this didn't involve a team, and you know this didn't involve a team in the South. But you know, the best game I ever saw, uh, even better than uh, Georgia, Oklahoma, and the Rose Bowl 2017 season, was Texas, uh, Texas USC 
for the national championship. I mean, that 05 game at the at 05 game. Yeah. That that's that is the best football game I've ever seen. What made it the best football game you ever saw? Well, look at the look who's on the field. You got you got you got not one but two Heisman Trophy winners on the field. Texas has got Vince Young and all these. There's so much talent there, and USC is in position to win. They go for it on a fourth down and they don't make it. And you could feel the energy ratchet up in that press box when mm. they were giving. They were going to give Vince Young one last possession to win the game. And it was uh, it was it was absolutely incredible. Yeah, what kind uh, of deadline were you on, Tony, for the Atlanta very, Constitution? A very deal? tight one, I might add. So, so how many uh, minutes? How many minutes did you have to write that one? I think that one. Well, I would, we were doing, as you well know, Todd, from your your career, we were doing running. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we were doing we were doing <laughs> running. Yeah, but what you do is you do running of the game. You describe everything that's happened, and you got two leads. One of Texas wins and one of USC wins, and then you you cut and paste and put the right lead on the top and ship it. So I, my first story, I know I got out less than five or six minutes after the game was over. Right. Uh, and then you come back, and as they say, you do a write-through where you get some coherent thought into it, and uh, then you got maybe about another hour to get yeah, it as done. A, as a writer once said to me next, when a game like that ended, he said, great game, wish I could have seen it. That's right. Well, I, I, well, I got I to share this story. This is the Final Four story. Uh, you remember the 1991 Final Four? Uh, oh, in, yes. In Indiana. I was there. I was, I was there. I was, sitting yeah. there. I was sitting there at courtside. Mark Bradley, my colleague from the AJC, was there in the first game. People forget. Everybody remembers Duke beating UL, UNLV in the second game. What they don't remember is, is that Kansas and North Carolina in the first game of the semifinal. And Dean, and Dean Smith got Smith, thrown out. Right. He, get, he gets tossed by Pete Pavia. Uh, and, and it was just an incredible thing that was going on. So I, I couldn't stick around and watch. I had to go chase that story. Hank Nickel, the supervisor of officials, had to have a press conference to explain what was going on. I thought Bill Guthridge was going to take out that official. Bill Guthridge was Dean Smith's longtime assistant. He's chasing the officials out into the tunnel. He's so mad. And uh, all, all this is going on. I get back to my seat. I got to write this stuff. And, and, and all of a sudden, this game is going. We're in the second half. I said, Mark, someday, I, that's a hell of a game. Will you someday? Will you tell me what happens? But, <laughs> exactly. Right. But I but I did finish. I did finish in time to get a story in. But it's just it's it's crazy stuff like that that you remember. Well, that's what makes college sports uh, so passionate. You know, the, you know, a lot of times the schools or state universities they have the name of the state right there on their jerseys, or and uh, you know people can just get wrapped up into the emotion, and it makes you know it just adds a layer of context to. Uh, the, the event, especially when you have a rivalry, and you certainly have rivalries in the in the South and the traditions and the game day. When you when you're writing for that type of passionate fan base, college football in the South, what what is it like to write for that audience? What kind of hate mail have you gotten over the years? <laughs> well, first of all, you better have your facts straight because if you don't, somebody is going to point that out. I mean these. The fans down here know they're pa- not only that they are passionate. That is true, but they're also incredibly knowledgeable. Uh, they will they will talk to you in terms like you know my child wasn't born in 1972. My child was born the year that uh, Auburn beat 
Alabama and punt Bama punt, uh, <laughs> things things like that. And so the fans here are very very knowledgeable, and they're not very forgiving if they feel like you have slighted their team in any way. And many of them do feel that way because I have heard from them. Well, it's all right. So tell us, what have you heard? <laughs> oh no, it's just, it, it, they said you. Well, it usually begins with you hate fill in the blank. I said no, I don't hate anybody. I wrote the facts of the game as I saw them or what I thought them to be. But right. pe- pe- people assume if you write something that's not completely positive that you hate their team, and, and and you don't. You don't. But you're trying to give an objective look as to what you see. But right. the, the and the the rivalries down here uh, are just. Uh, absolutely incredible. I mean, uh, and first of all, when people ask me about the great rivalries in Southern football, mm-hmm. I, pr- I purposely do not mention Alabama-Auburn. And so they'll say, well, what about Alabama-Auburn? I said, oh, I, I thought you wanted to talk about football rivalries. Alabama and Auburn's way bigger than a football rivalry. Mm. Uh, it's uh, Jim Fife, who was the longtime voice of Auburn. He's deceased now. He said that he said he moved to the state of Alabama from Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And he said, when you move to this state, uh, well, first of all, if you're born in this state, you're either born Alabama or Auburn. You, you can't straddle a fence. You have to make a decision. You have to pull for one or the other. And he mm-hmm. said, if you move into the state of Alabama, you have to declare. You can't be, <laughs> you can't be ambivalent about it. And... Gene Stallings, the former Alabama coach, once said, said, Alabama-Auburn is the only game I know that they talk about it on January 1st. They talk about it on Easter. They talk about it on the 4th of July. They talk about it on uh, Christmas. And they talk about it on Halloween. They talk about it every single day. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing else that I've covered that is like uh, Alabama-Auburn in terms of the intensity and how it is ingrained into the culture. Is there a particular game that sticks in your mind about it? Uh, I, I, I let's see, let's see. You know, obviously the 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 uh, the kick six game uh, will always be one in the memory. Uh, the one I remember, to, we forget that Tommy Tuberville won six straight games as the Auburn coach against Alabama, and him being carried off the field uh, for uh, one of those. Uh, but there have just been so many, many great games. It's just uh, incredible, incredible rivalry. Well, you know, it's funny. The, uh, the rivalries are obviously polarizing, but a lot of times it's the individuals that, that are polarizing down south, and you get a guy like Steve Spurrier or, <laughs> or, or you know. And I think about, like, again, it's, it becomes so personal, you know, it's like, I, believe me, I live in Ohio. I know about passionate fans for college football. But it almost seems like it's just more personal down there with oh, uh, a guy like, so a guy like Steve Spurrier, he, he just knew how to press buttons, right? Right, right. I, I give you a Steve Spurrier story. Uh, Steve Spurrier, of course, uh, won all those championships and national championship as coach of the Florida Gators. But then he went to South Carolina and had an incredible run. Yeah, he really did when you think about it, yeah. Yeah, three three straight 11-win seasons, had an incredible four-year run. And one thing I've known, I've known Coach Spurrier since he was the head coach at Duke back in the late 80s. And so occasionally I would just give him a call uh, just to see what he was doing, see if he'd say anything, you know, off off 
topic column. Hey, throw and that fishing line out there, right? You know, you they, never know. You never know what he's going to say. And so this was about, I don't know, two weeks before the National Signing Day in February. He was at South Carolina. So I don't think I'll just call him up and see what he has to say. And so I called him up, and uh, he said, you know, Tony? He said, I'm gonna, we're getting ready to do something here at South Carolina that I never did when I was at uh, Florida. I said, I said, what's that, Coach? He said, we're going to sign a player from the state of Alabama. He said, you know, when I was at, when I was at Florida, I never could find out I never could sign a player from Alabama. It really, really bothered me. He said, of course, now, later on, we found out them scholarships that uh, Alabama was given was worth a lot more than our scholarships. <laughs> and I said, hey, that's pretty good, Coach. Uh, can I write that? He said, yeah, go ahead and write that. <laughs> so I did. And, and while I got, I got my chops busted on Twitter, nobody ever said the story was wrong. <laughs> right. That's your that's your ultimate defense. Whenever the subject line in your email says you're an idiot, Y O U R, just say, first of all, get your facts right. That's right. <laughs> so a guy like Spurrier is polarizing, but even a guy that really, you know, didn't, you know, a guy like Tim Tebow, who basically represented good things on the field right. and off, even he can be polarizing in the South. I don't know if I can recall a character in the last 20 years for certain uh, that just seemed to drive people mad like Tim Tebow. Yeah, I, I, and I never understood it. Of course, I have the benefit of getting to know Tim Tebow well on a, on a personal basis. One of the really, really quality human beings I have ever met in my life. Uh, very kind, uh, very patient with, when fans would come over and mob him for autographs and stuff like that. So I never... I never quite, I think the reason he was a polarizing figure is they won most of their games when he mm -hmm. was the quarterback there. And people do have a tendency to resent losing. And so I think that had a lot to do with it. But no, I never, I never understood the polarization around Tim Tebow. And nobody, nobody ever gave me uh, what I thought was a good enough explanation. So is there a time around Tebow where you can? maybe shed some light on what it was like just to be around that scene, like even a, at a hotel or a stadium where it just seemed like it was almost like, you know, the masses would just like be drawn to him. He was, he was a rock star because he was, he was, he, he was something he was, he was a very, very talented football player who had a, a great um, humanitarian uh, streak in him who did his, his father did a lot of humanitarian work. And so the fact, and that just made him, just made, he won the Heisman Trophy and to, and as a sophomore. And so uh, he, uh, he was uh, really something. Uh, but I just, I, I was always impressed when I was around him, the various functions uh, where he was just be, he'd be so patient uh, yeah. with the fans. And I've, I've seen him speak, give motivational talks and things of that nature. And I, you know, I, I guess part of the, the polarization is people don't believe he can, he's too good to be true. And what I found in, in my experience is, no, he's not too good to be true. What you see is uh, what you see is what you get. Well, I think Tebow, to me, kind of personifies how the game of college football grew beyond its borders, you know, really reflective of the television age that we all live in with sports today. Uh, you know, college football, as you mentioned, had been a, 
you know, a regional game. Mm-hmm. And and by the way, if you ever get a chance, uh, listeners, you got to read Southern Fried Football, the history, passion, and glory of the great Southern game written by one Tony Barnhart. That is the book to read about the passion of the Southern football. But it, it went from a regional game to more of a national game where we are today. Mm-hmm. And it really mm-hmm. kind of started with the SEC expanding, I think, in the early 90s and putting in that first 92 SEC conference championship game because, um, you know, after that, I, mean, I think at the time, some of the people in the SEC weren't even for that, right? Gene Stallings <laughs> was against it. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I will never forget the SEC meetings down in Destin when Roy Kramer announced to everybody that the SEC was going to expand uh, to 12 teams uh, and then they were going to create a conference championship game uh, from the two divisions because the Roy Kramer, being the visionary that he is, just a genius, uh, found a, a little-known codicil in the NCAA bylaws mm. uh, where if you had more than 10 teams, you could 10 or more. If you had more than 10 teams, you could split them up into divisions. But the only way you could have a championship game is to have divisional play. And that later, that later changed. So he told the coaches what he was going to do. And the coaches walk out of that meeting, they're shaking their heads. And I, I was one of the reporters standing next to Gene Stallings uh, when he said, we will, we will never win another national championship in the SEC. That was the spring of 1992. In the fall of 1992, the University of Alabama won the national championship. So. <laughs> His Crimson Tide did, right? Exactly. But- well, I think Roy Kramer kind of saw the future a bit, right? Let's let's say say well, what it is. It, he saw that it could be more of a national type of game, even no though the question. regional passion was there. No, no question, no question. And and once once and once the conference championship game got started, everybody else followed suit. The other move that Roy Kramer made that was just as big that put us on the track to a national sports was the creation of the BCS. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he wanted to come up with some kind of championship game where one versus two would play each other. And uh, it, it was, there were a lot of meetings and uh, a lot of discussions uh, with him about this, but, it, and, and nobody, I don't know that was been more energy expended fussing and cussing about anything as much as the BCS was. Oh, yeah, right. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is the BCS, while it guaranteed the top two teams would play, and it it didn't guarantee that the best two teams would play. It guaranteed that the top two teams would play. And some people did not not like it, thought it, you know, they they liked the old system. But the fact of the matter is the BCS is what put us on the path to what we have today, which is a four-team playoff that has done very well. And that's going to get – uh, even bigger in the future, I believe. But it was Roy Kramer's vision uh, to create the conference championship game and then the BCS uh, that put us on this current path. Well, I think about it. I covered the first BCS championship game out in Tempe, Arizona. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I bring it up because I was working for the Columbus Dispatch and they saw fit to send me there, mm-hmm. even though it involved Florida State and Tennessee. Right. Because already... It was obvious that this had national. It was a national championship game, but this game, in the context for the sport and the future, was going to be much more important. I, I never would have gone to a Florida State Tennessee game years prior, right? Rare, you know, 
from Ohio, but that really set the stage for moving forward. Everything is starting to become national. Right. And, and, and you knew that the national championship was going to be decided that night. It wasn't going to be this, well, all the game bowl games are played and the votes come out tomorrow. No. Right. The, a champion was going to get crowned that night. And, you know, the Columbus Dispatch wanted to be part of that because their hope is that Ohio State would be in that game a bunch of times. So, uh, yeah, uh, it, it, that was, that's why college football is a national game. And people, and think about this during the BCS with the, B, with the, with the BCS formula, people would stay up late at night to watch these games that could ultimately, you know, Hawaii's playing at two o'clock in the morning, but the outcome of that game might impact the BCS formula that picked the top two teams. Right, right. Well, you were a national college writer for the Atlanta Constitution Journal until 2008, and then you struck out on your own. You were working for CBS, ESPN, and like I said, you joined the SEC Network since in 2014, where you still are, and writing, and on TV, and on the radio, and, and everywhere. And uh, you know, I think it all kind of comes full circle. Even though it's grown to this national game in terms of perspective, you know, I think it's really neat that you brought up that there you were in February in the stands, sitting with your fraternity mm -hmm. buddies, watching the game. Um, does that say something to you about what, what the game means to people, the friendships and the, and the love and the, and the generational interest that you were there with your buddies and, and not working that night? Right. The, the, it's, it's really a cultural event. Uh, and when you go to games, particularly in the South, you'll see a tailgate with three or four generations of uh, people there. It, it is built into the fabric, uh, particularly of our culture. And uh, yeah, it, 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 it is something, it, it's, it's much more, as one coach told me, uh, it, it's, it's, it's not a game, it's a way of life. It's a particularly mm -hmm. a way of life for, for the folks down here in the South. And we look forward to the season getting started and people will plan their, uh, plan their weddings and plan everything. You don't, one of the basic rules that we have down here, and this is understood, is you do not have a wedding during football season. You, <laughs> right. just, you, just, you just cannot do it because I had one, one young lady told me about scheduling her wedding in uh, football season. She said, I had no idea. And all of a sudden I look up and three of my bridesmaids say, they, they, ain't gonna, they can't come. Okay, they got season tickets. I mean, they. they <laughs> I mean, um, well, well, I got. Wait a minute, I got married in Kentucky on a Saturday night in December, and there were people at the reception watching Kentucky play on TV. I do recall sure. that. I, I'm not going to name names. I'm just saying that's <laughs> you. You do that. You do that at at your own uh, peril. Right. Well, Tony, you're going to be back in press boxes and on the sidelines and in the studios this fall. Nearly 50 years of college football coverage, and um, I, I'm so glad that you're going to be there. You're going to be a, be there as a member of the Georgia Sports Hall of Fame, which we were enshrined in in May of 21. So uh, congratulations on that. And I do Thank say you. that Marie, your wife of 44 years, deserves a special shout-out because anybody who can be married that long to a sports writer no, it's a, deserves it's, some kind of credit. It's uh, it's amazing. It's absolutely <laughs> amazing. And uh, I told her one day at breakfast, now she's the one that keeps me grounded because she'll look at me like, Mr. College Football, who are you trying to kid? Okay. <laughs> I said, I said, sweetheart, I, I said, I told her one night morning breakfast, I said, I said, in your wildest dreams, 
did you ever think I'd be able to do all this? He says, well, first of all, honey, you know I love you, but you are never in my wildest dreams. I mean, come <laughs> on. <so. laughs> all right. Well, Tony, thanks so much for sharing stories from your career. I uh, look forward to uh, seeing you at a college football game soon. Thanks a lot. Okay, Todd. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.